0: Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. there at dominicmunkhouse.com. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. Today I'm chatting to Brendan Hall. Brendan is a public speaker and a coach and an author. He deals often with leadership teams in multinational organizations, helping them confront massive change. And he talks to me today about how he came up with his framework and how he developed his own personal key learnings. He was a skipper on the Clipper Round the World Yacht Race in 2009-10, and he didn't get to pick his crew. His crew are given to him, but in fact, it's his crew that wins the race. So what did he learn? What did he do? How did he facilitate that team from being the same as everybody else in the race to the team that won the race? And he suffered basically a mutiny early on. Um, His team met without him while he was in his bunk. And they gave him some really direct feedback about what he was going to have to change personally if he wanted to win the race. So we talk about that. Fantastic conversation. I'm sure you will enjoy it as much as I did.
1: I'm Brendan Hall. I'm a, a leadership keynote speaker, and my claim to fame, I guess, is that in 2009-10, I was the winning skipper of the Clipper Round the World Yacht Race, who I'm, I'm sure some of you, you
0: know, know of. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on today. So what do you have to do to be a skipper on the Clipper Race? I mean, let alone win it, but what do you have to do to even be at the start line.
1: I mean, you've got to be a pretty good sailor. So the uh, the, the whole idea is that it's a race for non-professional sailors. They're the crew, so anyone can sign up for it. And it's sort of the same with the skippers, meaning that they they're not recruiting, you know, Olympic level sailing talent. They recruit from a pool of, you know, very experienced, skilled sailing instructors who sort of understand what it takes to take people who don't have a huge amount of knowledge already and give them the skills that they need to be. Firstly, safe, and then secondly, high-performing. So, yeah, I remember I I was one of 160 applicants for this race, you know, and serious people. I'd worked for the company for a little while, so actually I was an internal applicant. They knew of me. I'd worked my way up from being a a second mate to a first mate and then a a skipper in their training program. I'll never forget the day. And and over the course of a, a number of sailing trials, they whittled down these 160 to the final 10. There's 10 jobs, 10 boats in this race and 10 skippers, one on each. And the day that we were announced, so there was this, they sort of put the notice board up with these 10 names and, you know, uh, everyone was on tenterhooks. So I didn't sleep a night the night before, you know, was I going to get this, my dream job, this thing I've been aspiring towards my, you know, last few years. And um, my name was on the list. The race director at the time, who would become a friend, he told me that I was the 10th out of the 10 selected. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. <laughs> And then the ten of us all get together in this in this room. And I, I gotta tell you, like it was at that moment, you know, when I was a competitive person, I was in it, so around the world you're a race, I want to win. But suddenly I kind of shrunk in that moment. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, that that imposter syndrome sort of set in because the nine my nine rivals were older and far more experienced in relative terms. You know, we were all very experienced, but suddenly my dream of kind of winning this around the world race suddenly seemed a lot a hell of a lot harder. And I knew I just based on skill and experience I wasn't going to be able to outsail these far more experienced skippers than me but actually the the more we got talking the more the conversation flowed the more I realized we were sort of using a slightly different vocabulary. I think a lot of them were talking they're talking about their crews, you know, each of us had a crew of about 44 people, 44 45 of whom 20 would be on the boat at any one time. So because when people sign up to do this race, they can either do the full round the world trip or just a smaller section of it. So they were talking about their crew as sort of being this necessarily present labor force. They were there to perform a function. Obviously, I have to keep them safe. That's my job as a leader. But kind of I have the knowledge and skills. They don't. My job is to, to train them to a safe level and kind of make sure they don't screw up too badly. Because that's kind of what we expect of them, you know, and, and it's a dangerous environment, and obviously you will all care and attention there. But they're there to do what what I tell them. And I, you know, I was from all the research I've done. I think I was the, probably the best prepared out of all the ten skippers pre race or pre selection, at least. I was talking about, you know, we've got to create this environment of autonomy and empowerment and talking about the crew as these sort of empowered agents who you had to align and get by and I was sort of just using this different vocabulary and I I remember that being a sort of vivid memory from that that one meeting and again I sort of shrunk again and I felt like an outlier in a second way so it was the youngest least experienced and I sort of had this very different approach and I left that room sort of with this real sense of only time is going to tell which one of these two approaches is going to yield results.
0: And so had you, had you been on, because you said you'd been uh, first mate and so on, it, so you, you had sailed the Clipper race before?
1: No, I hadn't. So I hadn't skipped the race before, but they've, they've got this large training base down in Portsmouth.
0: You've got to get the 45 people so they're safe on a boat, and the first time they see it is not going round Cape Horn.
1: Exactly. So this, this all happens before they are divided out into teams. There's just a pool of 450 people every two years that have to be trained. So, you know, quite high level. So I was part of the, the team there that delivered that training, but no, I hadn't set off. I hadn't done a leg of the race before. So that was my experience beforehand. I had done lots of ocean sailing before
0: that though. What got you into sailing in the first place? Family, family of sailors, family of pirates,
1: do you know Dom? I'd love, I'd love to tell you the story that, like, I was a, child, you know, I had salt and our blood, and it grew up on dinghies and all the rest. It for me, it was an absolutely career-driven choice. So I, uh, I left school. I, I did a couple of years in the in the forces, saw some great leadership there and some not so great leadership. Anyway, I, I left that and then uh, went to work in IT help desk support with the headset on in a strip lit grey office in the days of dial-up internet, asking people have they turned it off and on again. It was the abattoir of the human soul. I just went, I can't do this. I just started looking for any other career I was looking at, like ski instructor, mountain guide, you know, just something that was outdoors, a bit adventurous, working with my hands, uh, and actually, I settled on sailing because unlike a lot of those other gigs, which are sort of seasonal type things, sailing's got this really clear kind of career progression. You can get these qualifications, as, as you know, sort of build up and, and you can have a, a much longer career in it. So, yeah, it was, it was driven entirely by that. So it was a, 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 my second career abruptly ended and I was on to my third one, which is when I moved over to the UK. I went to the United Kingdom Sailing Academy and, uh, yeah, on the Zero to Hero course, came out of that with my little yacht master ticket and out into the industry.
0: UKSA in cows, yeah. What did you end up working on? Because it sounds very glamorous, but often at the beginning it's not very glamorous at all.
1: Not really. Well, certainly there was there was no money in it. So I. It was for me in the early days, it was all about experience and marble things. So I started working for a, uh, a delivery company. So brand new yachts, they get built in factories in France and Germany. They get shipped out to um, the Atlantic coast of France, put in the water. And then they this company is essentially contracted to put people on the boat and sail them across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, where the charter bases that hire these boats out, that are the buyers of them. So, yeah, basically, you'd, you'd pick up a boat, sailed across the Atlantic, maybe 14 to 20 days. You'd hop on a plane, fly back, pick up another one and just do that. Do the milk
0: run. Aha. Building your miles. Building your miles. And so what, how, how did you end up getting a job at at Clipper then?
1: I'd, I'd always wanted to go into the super yacht industry, you know, which is, which is where the money is and where I eventually did end up for the financial imperative. But... Um, That's what I thought I wanted, but actually, I remember part of my training at UKSA, the very final part was in the Mediterranean, it was an ocean crossing where we were doing out sextant, sun site, moon site, star site reductions, and uh, we were on this this large 67-foot steel yacht, and the skipper was an ex-clipper skipper herself, and we got caught out in a mistral in the Med, which is a catabatic wind that blows off the Alps, You know, huge force 10, force 11 wind, And big waves. And I remember just being absolutely scared out of my pants. This is the biggest weather i would ever seen. The boat was absolutely sound as a pound. It was built for this sort of conditions. But the skipper, she was just so calm and in control and just reassuring. And it was like, do you know in that moment where you sort of feel the the tectonic plates shift? And I was like, man, forget that super yacht stuff. Like, I want to be like you. I want to do this. I'm going to, yeah, just teach me. Jedi master. And, and that was it. And she was the one that put in a, a good word for me with Clipper. And uh, that paid off a couple of years later. And I, I eventually started working there on the back, back of that recommendation.
0: Fantastic. So look, take us back to, yeah, here you are, you've now got your, you've sneaked in under the wire number 10 and you're thinking, you're thinking differently about your, your crew. How, so what happens? What happens next? How do you go from being, how do you overcome your imposter syndrome and win?
1: that's a great question no I, I mean I, I don't think it went away and it still doesn't and I think I think if if I'm honest with myself and I think if, if most leaders in business or any other domain are honest with themselves it's, it's still sort of it still comes back and it's still there so no I don't I don't think it went away I think I always felt I had a lot more to prove maybe because I was I was young I I, I wasn't the perfect leader I set out to be you know I had I had my key learnings on the race and they came from the moments where I tried things and got them wrong. I made my people management mistakes of the race, despite knowing that that this was a race of 10 teams, essentially, rather than a race of 10 yachts. So before the race, we had this, uh, I had my 44 people. They'd been assigned. And that was a funny process too, because when, when I was literally handed 44 names and contact details on a sheet of A4, that was it. I mean, you get no say in who's on your team. So the race organizers, they take this crew pool of about 450 people. And they divide them out evenly into 10 teams, making sure that there's a, a range of ages, there's an equal mixture of men and women, and that they all prior sailing experience. Because, you know, the experienced sailors like yourself often sign up to do the race. So they want to make sure that those people are divided out evenly in the interest of making sure everything's even Stevens. So when I uh, I first got allocated my team, yeah, it dawned on me pretty quick that they wanted very different things out of this race. Um, and <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, because you're not dealing with Olympic athletes at the top of their physical and mental game who are there to win. You're dealing with people who signed up and paid a lot of money for an experience, one that's been very skillfully marketed to them as this life-changing, life-defining thing. So hugely invested. I sent them out a survey, my 44, and the answers I got back just blew me away. I, and I remember this vividly. There was one guy, one of my crew, who signed, who, who had signed up. He was one of my round-the-worlders. And he only answered one of the questions, and he said, "I'm here to win. Second place is the first loser." (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he was stuck with him for ten months. Brilliant. (laughs) To someone else, right, the other end of the spectrum, she she replied much much later, and after this reading this War and Peace esque, I mean, incredibly detailed, well written life story of an email, she cut to the chase and said she was on the race to try and meet a husband. (laughs) <laughs> there I was, I was the leader of this team and I'd just been given, you know, and, and, and everyone else's answers sat somewhere in between those two. But yeah, I had to come up with this, this ethos, this way of working, this, you know, culture that was going to obviously keep everyone safe, priority number one, bring everyone back to their loved ones. It was going to, high-performing, you know, it's a, it's a race, it's not a cruise around the world, but also satisfy the most needs of the most people. Obviously, I wasn't going to be able to give everyone exactly what they wanted, but yeah, you had to you have to find something that everyone could sort of get behind and align on. And that was, you know, that was one of the biggest challenges and most important tasks of all of the skippers. And I think I was possibly the, the one that really saw that and really understood that, whereas the others sort of thought the culture would emerge organically.
0: I just think that is fascinating because... The lesson for that from anybody with a team, I mean, I I sit down with clients and I say, you know, with executive CEOs and their executive teams, and it's, you know, where are we going? And they don't know where they're going. And what are our expectations for the journey? They haven't thought about that. And so, you know, here you've got a really clear journey and it's like, what are your objectives for the journey? And then like, if we can all get some of the people, some of the things that they want, everyone will be, because what happens is it's when people's expectations are out of sync. You know, one guy thinks everyone's like him, so he thinks everybody wants to win, and one lady on your team just wants a husband. Couldn't give a bugger about winning. I mean, unless unless people know that where they're coming from, they're, they're just going to fall out. And I think it's funny that some of the other skippers just didn't see that as a thing that they needed to worry about.
1: Well, exactly. And I think, I think like you say, that the scope for conflict when you get 20 personalities, each one bringing their own childhood, their own baggage everything, all the programming of their life together on this yacht, I put them under big pressure in this, you know, real sardine tin. You can imagine the scope for conflict. So at least being able to eliminate the, why we all here? What do we all want out of it? And I think everyone came into, everyone knew that maybe they weren't going to get exactly what they wanted, but they, they had to be flexible. There's, there's 20 people on the team.
0: Did you share that output with the team or is that, did you get them to share that with each other in some way?
1: Yeah, we, we all shared it with each other. And I think mo- most people, as far as I remember, they they said pretty much the same thing that they wrote to me confidentially
0: <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: in the email, which was very good. But yeah, we, we made it a real thing. So we had a lot of strategy, sort of planning sessions before the race where we talked a lot about this sort of stuff and how we were going to manage conflict, what their expectations of me should be, what they needed from me. Um, and yeah, and it, it's interesting because you you are right. And there were a lot of people who, who winning was just not on their agenda. It was about, catalyst for some change in their life. It was a big adventure they'd always wanted to do. But by the end of the race, and this may come across as cynical, but I've I've never met someone who doesn't like winning. And provided you can get the results, people will go along with a lot that maybe they didn't explicitly sign up to. And they, they get to share... In that winning as well and i mean i guess it's the the big disconnect you know and no one feels hugely motivated by sort of making the chief executive richer but actually if if that win however it is you know whatever it looks like can be shared and they feel a real sense of that and ownership of it that's a huge motivator i found even for people who maybe say it's not
0: yeah people like success people like praise I've never been in a business where people have said, you know what, they just overpraise us. I mean, they tell us we're doing a great job so many times. Please tell them to stop doing that. It's like that never happens.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And so when you think about the race and those pre-race strategy sessions, where was the biggest disconnect? So when you got together and did your planning and then the thing you thought was going to happen, like what was the, what was the, biggest, the biggest thing you just got? I mean, either completely right or completely wrong. Well, I,
1: it, was, it was early on, right? So I'd, I'd, we'd had this strategy session where we'd come up with our vision, mission, values, acceptable and unacceptable behaviours, and we'd cover this sort of meeting room in flip chart paper. And, you know, it was – and I was on fire. Right? <laughs> um, I had made some big promises, and people thought, yeah, we've got a, re- a seriously switched-on leader. You know, he's a young guy, but, you know, he knows his stuff. Anyway, so we go out, we start the race. We're racing down the Atlantic, first long leg of the race. And, you know, I really start to feel the pressure on myself, maybe – driven again by that feeling of imposter syndrome and needing to, you know, sort of overdo it. But I, I committed our first, my first big, I guess people management mistake of the race, which is where I, I stopped focusing on the, I guess the process and doing everything to an incredibly high level and, and trusting that if we do that and we lay the groundwork and we do the training and I, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint, a sprint I became too fixated on the short term performance so the way it worked out there on the race, every six hours, we would get an email sent to the boat, which would give us our position relative to the other nine in the fleet. So we could tell every six hours whether we'd gained miles, lost miles, and how we were doing relative to the others. And I became too emotionally invested in in this position report. So if we, we had a good one, I'd be really jubilant, very generous with my praise, want to see people rewarded, you know, and, and it was great. And, and then if we had a bad one that mood would just be crashed into the ground and I'd drag the whole team with me. And I kind of didn't see this. This baby was in my blind spot. And, and yeah, it carried on for you know, a couple of weeks, really. And, and it was destroying morale. But again, if, you'd, if someone had stuck a microphone under my mouth and said, what type of leader are you being right now? I would have said, well, I'm being a passionate leader who knows what we're, we're capable of and how we should be performing. And when we're not meeting that high standard we expect of ourselves, you know, and da 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 da, da. But I, I didn't see the kind of human cost behind me. I was just so fixated on the numbers. I guess, you know, the, the analogy to business would be the quarterly report, right?
0: Yeah. And what, what brought that into focus then? So the team, right? They um... <laughs> A mutiny. <laughs> as
1: close as you can get to it, really, without choking me overboard. No, right. So they got together in the middle of the night Without me, <laughs> yeah, I was on one of my one of my off-watch sort of asleep periods, and they they all got together on the deck of this boat and sort of in hushed tones, just by the light of their head torches, you know, they talked about this behaviour and the skipper who was. You know, taking them on this roller coaster ride, how it was affecting their morale, you know, we gotta deal with this for ten bloody months, this experience we've all kind of paid a good amount of money for. It's all, you know, this isn't what we signed up for. And anyway, so one of my crew who was an HR director in her, you know, Life is short, she uh, she volunteered to uh, to be the one to sort of bring it to my bring it to my attention.
0: <laughs> give you an appraisal.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the next day, right, we, and we just had a bad position report, so I was I was kind of not in a great place. And this person comes up and says, Brendan, we need to have a chat. We've had a meeting without you, and we've been, uh, uh, whoa, 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 okay, what? And so she tells me about it and what they discussed and all the rest. And I tell you, I, I went to my bunk after that meeting, and I was just, I was hit with disappointment and shame like a cannonball to the stomach. Yeah, I I mean, I I knew I was absolutely caught out, totally banged to rights. As soon as she said it, I was like, I totally see why you're saying this. And, you know, a real penny drop moment for me. And, uh, yeah, so I had to change things, you know. And and that's the thing about being out there uh, on a yacht in the middle of the ocean as opposed to in a business maybe where at least you can go home, decompress, drink some wine, talk to a sympathetic ear or a coach or mentor. Out there, you know, you're on your own. You've got to turn things around. You've got to do it quick. I had to sort of I, I say I rearranged the furniture in my in my mind. I had to put when I, I was laying in my bunk, I went right when I put my boots back down on the deck, like I've got to, something's gotta change. Which which is hard, right? So I but what I did is I pulled out a marker pen, this sort of permanent marker, and I wrote on the bulkhead just above my bunk so I'd see it every time I lay down, my head hit the pillow. I wrote, Your mood equals their mood. Was one of the key pieces of feedback they gave me. Was you know when you when you're up, it brings us up. When you're down, it brings you down. It, it sort of made me aware of this this big shadow that a leader casts, and they they don't think they do, but the analogy they said it's like you you're holding the remote control to our mood and our confidence. And I, I didn't realize the power that I had over them just by my position of authority, I suppose. So so bringing that into into the light, out of the blind spot, was was a key learning for me and. Uh, I did end up having to go and stand in front of them and, and eat a cement mixer full of humble pie, but you know we turned things around. They they understood. You know we're, we're all we're all on a journey. We're all learning our lessons. And but that was it. You know, understanding that mood shadow that a leader casts over the team was huge. And I, I had a I had a few instances where I, I reverted to type later on in the race, but they were pretty quick to kind of bring me back into the back into line. And and it was a behaviour that I said I want you to keep me accountable to.
0: Yeah, CEO, Chief Energy Officer. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So how did you then go from there to winning? (sighs) Gosh. (laughs) I know that's, know that's that's a long story to tell, I know, but...
1: We learned a lot of lessons as we went, you know, and other key lessons we learned was about how we discussed what... When something hadn't gone well, how we learned a lesson from it, how we developed that growth mindset, and rather than becoming a blame culture where sort of fingers get pointed, it's sort of how can we collectively learn from this and we, we had one of our values was that we will only use blame in the event of gross negligence or malice everything else is learning experience so by sort of putting that and you know really in bold caps putting them up on the wall it just allowed everyone to sort of speak up and talk straight everyone offered ideas no one had to worry about status managing or you know seeming they're asking a silly question right i mean it's the smallest thing right but but just having that front and center that that everyone's voice will be heard and no one's going to get blamed for mistakes, I suppose, um, and problems. It's not to say you shrug off poor performance indefinitely, you know, but it just allowed people to sort of bring bring their whole selves. And the other thing we did really well was was empowering people. So it was about me as a leader having to lay down that heroic leader mantle of that important feeling, maybe ego-driven leader where you're at the center of all decision making. You know, you're that driving force and taking those backward steps. And, and actually out there on the race, there was an, another imperative for that, because if I was killed, incapacitated or washed over the side of the boat, I had to know that my crew at a minimum could get themselves to a safe port from anywhere in the world, really, in any conditions. And so for me not to do that, for me to be that puppet master kind of controlling leader would actually be to quite selfishly rob them of that ability to get themselves to safety so yeah the, I, I would say those were probably the three really big things that we did that they were our usps if you like and and other boats eventually got there but we kind of got there much quicker and had it formalized and it wasn't just sort of an organic process those were the big things that allowed us and by the end of the race you know we, we won the race by uh, the record since been beaten but um it was the largest margin it had been won by Largely, by how we performed in the final sort of third of the race, we just cleaned up because we'd learned those lessons because we had an empowered team who felt psychological ownership and you know i was I was kind of keeping the the monkey in the box, chimp in the box to use professor Peters
0: yeah, and then I guess because you've got those people swapping out, how many legs is it?
1: there were seven legs
0: seven legs so you've got so you've got new people seven times. What proportion of the crew swaps out each time half. Half. So, you know, you've, you know, if you've got a really solid culture there after that first leg, you know, the new people come in, you can, if you've got it laid down and, and mapped out, then you can communicate it quickly to the new people who are coming on board. Whereas the other boats, you know, half the people go, some of the problems will go away, but new problems will appear. If you don't have a, if you don't have it systematized, you're gonna have to work it out again.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that was something we again, we talked about early on and we went, well, this is this is we're going to look at this as a competitive constant across the fleet, like every boat is going to go through this process. And if we can do this better than everyone else, then that's going to be a big competitive advantage for us. So, yeah, we had this 50% sort of staff turnover rate at every stopover. And so we we had things where we would buddy people up who hadn't come on the race yet. We'd put someone who'd finished their leg and sort of talk them through things, set expectations. But also, and the crew developed this, you know, entirely on their own, but this very comprehensive training framework so that when a new crew member joined, our boat it wasn't like okay we'll buddy, buddy you up with someone and sort of just take it slow start slow learn the ropes and you know it was you you're in boot camp the first four days it is non-stop and and it's like you say very systematized so i mean just bringing people's skills up to speed i would say we we did that at least 50 percent faster than most of the other boats but
0: and just gave yourself that gave yourself that that's where you won that you won the race in sort of the f- day five six seven eight nine ten of each leg because you just you just weren't making mistakes and everything was happening faster and better and slicker well
1: yeah and you know there's this this old saying in yacht racing is that you don't win a race you lose a race all you got to do is just just do everything consistently do the right things make the right calls at the right times generally play a conservative strategic game
0: <laughs> back to your original game plan and, and everyone else
1: will eliminate themselves. Just don't worry, just swim in your lane. Everyone else will, they'll, they'll take a gamble, they'll lose motivation, they'll they will mess up, they'll rip one of their sails, whatever. You just do your thing. And that's exactly what we found. And yeah, you're right. So it was sort of as the fleet really began to diverge and we couldn't see our competitors, they're off over the horizon. We just, mile by mile, it was, it was tiny marginal gains. We just got a little bit of a marshal.
0: And so you got, you won, fantastic. So how, what's the journey from winning that to what you do today? This is another career shift.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. I I can't remember career about number seven now. So after I um I finished the clipper race, my my wife and now wife, then girlfriend and I, we went and worked on super yachts. So we decided it was it was time to kind of earn some money, you know, we're kind of getting close to our thirties and so yeah, we did that for five years. That was lovely, working on large luxury sort of sailing vessels in the in the Madden Caribbean. And then when um when our first uh, child, our little daughter, was born. We moved back to the UK, settled down in, in Poole in Dorset, and I had to figure out what to do then. So I'd written a book after the race called Team Spirit. There'll be a, a link in the show notes, I think. And yeah, I just started getting asked by people, you know, could I come and speak at their yacht club and, you know, freebie type things. And I agreed to that. It was all very nice. I enjoyed doing it, making little PowerPoint presentations of photos. And and then it slowly dawned on me that there's this um, there's this whole field out there of people who do this professionally and and why couldn't I be one of them you know I had a good story to tell and that transitioned me into coaching into workshops into psychometrics as I asked myself the question how can I add more value than just this one hour sort of story about sailing around the world you know and, and as you know you know good good leadership whilst the real specifics of any industry and the technical skills required may differ you know the key behaviors kind of look the same or very similar wherever it's practiced. So, the experience I had and the the lessons that I can give my clients, I find you know what they say is is very applicable and certainly relevant to you know their own experience leading a, a startup or a more established business or you know with some strata of management in a in a global organization.
0: And do you take do you take your clients sailing?
1: I do. Yeah, yeah. I love doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I uh, again, I'll, I'll send you a video that you can you can put below. Yeah. I've got a program called Steer Your Ship Through Uncertainty and Change. So I'm all about I'm all about change because that's the thing about this world I inhabited on the Clipper race, and that it's it's one of constant change and massive uncertainty. You know, our, our planning horizon was about 48 hours. Beyond that, you know, weather you don't know what's more than about four or five days in advance with any real accuracy. You've got this race course that's 3,000 miles long by 2,000 miles wide strategically, you know, you, your options are open, you can go wherever you want. And at the same time, you know, you're in you in this high stakes short break, so the pressure is on. It you can't take forever to make your decisions. So yeah, I, I take that same experience. We take a boat, we sail out out into the Solent. I set some challenges, and, and basically, I, I get a team to create a strategic plan. They think it's brilliant. They fall in love with it, and then we go out onto the water, and very quickly, the reality. Began. <laughs> from their plan they they sort of had planned assuming that we can keep a seven knot average boat speed but as you know you know the tide's a little bit stronger the wind isn't exactly what it's forecast they try it, you know you can't sail directly upwind and, and so really it's all about watching them in that moment when they realize that this plan they have fallen in love with it, it, it ain't going to work or it ain't going to get the results that they have forecast and promised what do they do and it's watching those behaviors it's watching how the team make decisions And I'm a video camera, I'm I'm videoing it all. So, which is the next day we debrief, we watch back the video. And you know, it's it's a time to talk about those behaviors and what happens when we feel that we're out of our comfort zone, we're in a new world, we're feeling that change and uncertainty. How do we act and how do we behave? And how can we collectively, as a senior management team, whatever it might be, cope better with that situation that we found ourselves in? So, yeah, it's it's a way of by analogy talking about change and uncertainty in business and how our leadership affects, I guess, the shadow that we cast collectively over an organization and, you know, what can we do to sort of make that a, a positive influence now?
0: Yeah, because those st- those situations, that, that stress brings out, can bring out the worst in some people or the ordinary, as their colleagues might describe their poor behavior as, you know, and and sometimes people know they're doing it. Some people, sometimes people don't know they're doing it. Yeah
1: my most powerful, you know, one from, from this season just gone was when someone in the debrief and he watched the video back of himself and he just said, do I always talk over people like that? And there was just, there were, I think, 14 nodding heads around the table going, yeah, you always do that, particularly when you're stressed. And I mean, it was almost on the verge of tears. He was like, I can't believe that. i So, yeah, I mean, by by way of that powerful experience and watching yourself back, people do sort of, in that same way that some of my behavior was dragged out of the blind spot into the open, it does that same thing, which, you know, is, can be a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow in the moment, but it's ultimately great for someone's development.
0: Yeah, totally. Do Do you ever take teams out where their emotional maturity, you worry about what's going to happen in the debrief You know, because if if the team are, you know, quite well aligned and have got some trust already, that sort of feedback can be great. But do you have some total nightmare stories where people have just sort of the whole team's collapsed in on itself?
1: I'll be honest with you. I think I think it's possibly slightly self-selecting in that a team that has a feeling that they're not they're not ready for this, don't even sign up. Yeah, so, no, I've, I've never had that experience where it all, you know, people storm out of the room or, or anything.
0: Like I, the reason I was th- I was thinking back to my first job out of uni, where I did I did I was a graduate trainee at Marks and Spencer, and they took to store teams and they sent them to the uh, the Lake District and we did outward bound stuff for seventy two hours and you know some of it was sort of sleep deprivation stuff and and what would happen is if you had a really good team, it bonded the team, but where you had where the manager only had authority as a result of title. Those teams would just fall to pieces because in fact, he was totally rubbish at building a raft. And so he just had, you know, once you took him out of the context of the store and he had no longer had leadership authority, those teams would come back in a worse place than before, before they went. Um, so I think they pulled, they pulled the program shortly after that, but those teams that weren't self-selecting, they were being sent. So yeah, very different. So, now you work with who's your target? Who's your ideal sort of client?
1: Well, I mean, my, you know, my targets are. I suppose my just this year I've been working with GlaxoSmithKline, with Bayer, with Tesco, with Continental. Yeah, I mean, large organisations really who who are feeling the the winds of change. I think obviously Brexit. It's a, whole other story but whichever way it goes there's there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of feelings of things are going to change regulations are going to change what are we going to do we've got these plans in place which one are we going to go you know so everyone's feeling the change in uncertainty so it's a message I think that's quite of the moment right now and certainly that how can you create at least in your team in your organization a feeling of psychological safety in that it is going to be okay in the end and we do have the resources and the capability and the confidence to kind of get through it. So, I mean, in, in a one hour keynote, if I can give people that message loud and clear, then that's, you know, that's that's my job done. And then following up perhaps with some some coaching or some other interventions that, you know, we, we talk a bit deeper about how exactly what that looks and what people need. But in that same kind of way, I, I always bring my coaching to the the stage when I, I brief with a client, I ask them about their their current challenges, what they're going through, how are people feeling. Sometimes I poll the audience, you know, with their eyes closed, so you don't get group think. Like <laughs> oh, so it's not psychologically safe, people are people feeling now, like from one to five. And you know, with the, the, you tend to find it's it's sometimes this way, not always, but mostly the lower down people are in an organisation, the less safe they feel. You know, so. In the same way, that there's a, there can be a cognitive bias. We think people think like we do. You can get the top few strata of, of, a, of a big company thinking that everyone is sort of feeling the same way that they are. But that's, that's not the case.
0: Okay. If you uh, – it's a question I ask everyone I get on as a guest. If you could – knowing what you know now, is there a piece of knowledge you take back somewhere in time?
1: Yeah, I think I would. I think – I would have told my, my 17-year-old self, so just finished school, don't, don't join the Army. wasn't cut out for it couldn't hit the side of a barn with a rifle dom i was the worst infantry rifleman ever (laughs) Um, you know it just was not my thing and i think it was because i wanted to i wanted to be tough
0: but yeah don't do that um and
1: just go straight into saying
0: fab fab um along the way you must have read a number of a number of books management books are there some that you know, So other than your own, are there, are there some that you would recommend other people should pick up and read?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say there's, there's two for me. There's a great book called Drive by Dan, Daniel Pink, P-I-N-K, I'm sure you're familiar with it, where well, he just talks about motivation and what drives people. And, and, and actually, it's quite counterintuitive, and it's, it's not exactly what you think it is. And the other one is a great story by, um, uh, he was a United States submarine captain called David Marquette. That's M A R Q U E T, and he wrote a book called "Turn the Ship Around," taking a team that wasn't working so well and, and turning the ship around and, and making it you know a very high-performing team. And what he
0: yeah, I can I can see how that links with what you said there about earlier on. Well, those two actually both those books link with the way in which you describe the autonomy, you know, that the thing in drive, but and also you know that's one of the things that uh, David does in on the submarine, isn't it? It's that gets people to make the decisions themselves rather than waiting for the captain to tell them what to do
1: yeah fantastic they were both very very influential on the way i sort of put my campaign together
0: ah fantastic it's been absolutely brilliant having you on today thank you very much indeed
1: my pleasure thank you very much dom you know and uh, and all the best to, to all the sailors out there and i hope everyone has a great christmas
0: thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did As a token of your appreciation, it would be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading, and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter, the simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Munkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.